Uh, welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Brian Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we're really privileged to have uh, the Lit Crit guy, who many of our podcast listeners surely know, but if not, you should immediately follow him on Twitter, at the Lit Crit Guy. And thelitcritguy.com has a, a wonderful resource, and quite aesthetically pleasing, actually, which uh, I really appreciate. So uh, as intellectually stimulating as it is pleasing to the eye, uh, lots of good... Um, Essays, book reviews, meditations on not just political theory, but literary criticism, uh, political theology. A nice little resource, actually, of many of the hashtag theory time um, tweets, Jeet here-like tweets. Did you did you predate Jeet in the uh, the kind of um, series of tweets mode of tweeting, uh, or or do you recall? Uh, you know, I'll be honest. I think I think. Uh, Jeet was probably doing it before me, and I've always I've always found his his habit of numbering everything in the thread is is far more precise and accurate than I could ever <laughs> hope to be. So like, shout out to Jeet here for being the pioneer of the Twitter thread as essay. <laughs> Absolutely, but if he's the pioneer, you you are in the same league. So uh, it's uh you know it's, it's it's quite a thing. And so we're we're really pleased and and just honored to have you on, John. And and it's um. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about uh, really whatever you like, but I'm, I'm especially interested in, in your new project. So what, why don't you uh, tell our listeners a bit about um, your background and what you're getting into these days, uh, for those that don't know? Uh, yeah, so uh, as you've already said, my name is John. Uh, I am a writer and an academic and a teacher from the north of England. Um, I finished a PhD in 2017 on uh, the Gothic and its relationship to theology. And at the moment, what I'm working on is a new project uh, designed to kind of outline a, a gothic Marxism so and and a Marxist gothic, looking at the ways in which horror is not just a kind of metaphoric exploration of capital, but actually has a kind of, it is a diagnostic tool to explain our current uh, cultural condition. Uh, it, it, can, I, can I very quickly uh, sh- shamelessly plug something? Of course. Um, if um, well, I decided that what the left really needed was another podcast. Uh, so, me and a me and a friend have started uh, the horror. Is a podcast um, looks at horror film and leftist theory and tries to find ways in which we can um, understand our contemporary cultural condition through the lens of uh, anti-capitalist leftism and uh, the spookiest culture around. Wonderful. No, and, and what's the handle on Twitter to follow? Uh, the so we are handle? at Horror Vanguard on Twitter, and we are available on all good podcast ag- aggregating services. So please, if you have an interest Excellent. in the dark and the macabre, please do check out Horror Vanguard. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. And if you're afraid, well, this could be a way to conquer that fear, indeed, and and be become a bit more literate. Well, while yeah, doing so. I would hope so. That we're yeah. we're always about trying to encourage people to embrace the dark side, as it were. <laughs> Wonderful. And yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I was just going to confess that um, I am I am generally I, I generally don't like horror. Uh, I, f- I find it too scary. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. It's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's an interesting psychology there, and maybe maybe this this is like a good jumping off point to um, uh, get into you know your your gothic Marxism Marxist gothic thing, which is that uh, 
you know, I, I find like horror, horror films, especially I, I can read horror books just fine, but horror films, I find like, like almost, uh, impossible to sit through cause it's too tense mm-hmm. and it, it, like, it, it just bothers me. But on the rare occasions when I have managed to like sit through, um, one, one film, for example, the ring, which is pretty damn scary, uh, it always really sticks with me, you know, and and the experience. I, I I enjoy the experience, sort of like how people talk about writing books. I enjoy the experience of having watched a horror film, even though usually <laughs> I can't get through it. Well, this is really interesting. In one of our latest episodes, we talked about the fact that horror is a kind of affective form. So there's lots of other. I mean, uh, uh, Marxists and people on the left like me are, are usually more drawn towards science fiction because of the classic idea that that is a, that engages you cognitively, you know, it's a, it's a kind of intellectual speculation. Uh, but horror is, is a unique, uh, has this kind of unique capacity to like physically affect us to do things to our body. Um, you know, it, it's designed to kind of provoke reactions and that sustained tension. There's a real high from when you, when you go through it, I think Roger Ebert has this great quote where he says that watching a good horror movie, you come out feeling glad to be alive. Uh, and I, mm. yeah, go ahead. No, I just agree. Yeah. That, that's a wonderful insight perhaps into why horror might be useful, right. As a, as a tool for understanding capitalism and what it does to us as well as a resource to kind of, you know, develop our subject formation in a way to combat kind of the shocks to the system and, and, and the countervailing, um, ways in which capitalism harms our, our ability to, to cope uh, with all the evils that it, that it produces. Uh, so, so that's an, that's an interesting insight into um, how, how actually Ryan, if you sit through and, and, and experience what you need to experience, you might be kind of um, uh, avoiding the atrophy of, of certain affective traits necessary to cope with capitalism. I mean, yeah, I would completely agree. We're, we're atomized by contemporary capitalism. You know, people like Mark Fisher have written really very movingly, actually, about the kind of uh, the gray vampires of capitalism that are designed to kind of suck away effective joy and creativity and and communal experience. Mm. And so, you know, a a horror film is something that you should absolutely watch together as well. It's collect. It is a it is a uniquely Mm. collectivist (laughs) form of media. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? Yeah, who goes to a horror flick alone? Unless maybe, perhaps you do, John. I don't know, but but that's it's it's always meant for you to grab the person next to you and and, and kind of just almost in, enjoy that that solidarity of fear that's in a strange what we need, way. You know, that's what we need to kind of shake us out of our our, our kind of imposed uh, effective dead zone that is uh, life in the neoliberal hellscape. <laughs> what what came first for you the, the the interest in leftism or the interest in in horror what what brought about this this great intersection uh, so i would i would like to say that it was uh kind of some unique insight but um as with many things in my career it's been a sort of series of of dumb luck and being in the right place at the right time <laughs> so um you know i i i you know i i've been brought up in kind of uh, a pretty left leaning environment my grandfather was a was a miner um and so going to university and encountering uh, a, a lot of the kind of leftward drift in my thought was was triggered by Twitter. I think that's one of the things that Twitter is uniquely good at. Um, you join, 
You know, there's that meme tweet that goes around that says, like, I joined Twitter seven years ago to keep up with One Direction. Now I'm a communist. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like beautiful. that's a beautiful thing. And, and engaging with the kind of, uh, uh, actually, a lot of podcast creators and writers uh, who I sort of connected with through Twitter. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I graduated from my undergraduate degree in uh, maybe one of the worst times to leave university. So I looked around and went, I'll just, I'll just stay. I'll just, I'll stick around. I'll do one more year. And so the university that I was at, it was, uh, at the time, one of the only, the only taught master's course on, on the Gothic in the UK. And so I, I stayed there and, um, decided actually I wanted to pick it up and run with it. Um, and so I did the PhD on, on the 19th century Gothic and realized that actually, you know, that it was, it was reading, it was reading Marx, you know, Marx is full of, full of vampires, capital emerging from its, from the earth covered in blood and gore and the kind of, the kind of horrors of industrial capitalism, which, you know, we sort of gloss over as this amazing, the birth of modernity. Uh, but then, you know, you, you read, you read capital, you read Engels condition of the working class, you read uh, fiction like Upton Sinclair, and you realize that, what was built as and promised to us as you know a glorious modern age is actually jameson has this great quote that capitalism is simultaneously the best thing that's ever happened to us and an unmitigated disaster uh, and, and and that is not that is not in that, that is a kind of dialectical tension that has to be held on to so uh, that's and so you know if you you can dismiss all of that in marxism as kind of metaphoric and elusive and literary and that's fine, but really, actually, there's a real sense that the kind of cultural anxieties of an age are personified in horror. And so uh, why would it not be a surprise that the political anxieties of an age would, would pop up there too? So <clears throat> maybe maybe just, you know, for the benefit of uh, listeners and myself, um, you could sort of back up a little bit and, and, and tell us about uh, the the idea of gothic, you know, so so what does it mean f to to have a Marxist uh, gothic or, or um, gothic Marxism? Uh, okay, so yeah, so a, a, a gothic Marxism is that like very very crudely like kind of orthodox Marxism or kind of like classical Marxism when confronted with what would seem to be very low cultural forms would would sort of dismiss this as a kind of like false ideology and we would try and get rid of it and explain it the way. Um, I mean, the classic example there is, is someone like uh, Lukash, the, the great philosopher of Bolshevism and his theory of the novel, which focused very much on the kind of high realist writing and uh, anything that was kind of low culture, we'd be like, ah, well, let's not bother about that. Like, but instead of seeing it as a kind of, um, you know, illusion to to be dispelled and kind of gotten rid of i would a kind of gothic marxism would look at looks at the kind of the non-material the supernatural the superstitious as sites of genuine political activity and engagement so very simply it's about taking even even like the midnight slasher movie seriously as a site in which we can kind of do genuine cultural criticism and kind of consciousness raising and and how does that differ from you know I, I one presumes this isn't like the ordinary conception of gothic in the in the like you know mainstream sense right so how like 
Can can you outline the differences there, you know, between like if you're just a sort of, you know, uh, literature professor or something and you're talking about Gothic, like what's the what's that type of uh, conception? Well, <laughs> oh, well, like that if you want to welcome to it, like like any academic field, <laughs> you ask you ask like six gothicists, you'll get like 12 answers. John, we're going to make you define every single term. We're going to, I'm going to ask you to, I want you to define what literary criticism is and critical theory and what political theory is. And oh, you're hell yeah. Defi- e- e- everyone on Twitter will get <laughs> do mad it, at do me. Do it, maybe. <laughs> okay, so very, very broadly, actually, this, this idea that like there's a kind of cultural form which expresses the anxieties of its, of its production is pretty well accepted. So in a way, it isn't like, it isn't like a huge leap to take this in a kind of explicitly political direction. Um, one of the most common alternatives is that um, you would say that this is about the kind of psychological anxieties of a particular age, and you would explore that through something like psychoanalysis. Or you would say it would be about the kind of historicist anxieties of a particular age, in which case you you look at it as a kind of historical artifact. And I think there's huge validity in those approaches. And if anything, I would think that a kind of explicitly more political literary criticism has, you know, after a huge wave of sort of um, right wing anti-intellectualism, kind of being an explicitly Marxist critic uh, of literature and culture is something that is maybe not uh, as as easy to do. I mean, if you think of the kind of the great uh, literary theorists who all sort of unorthodox but pretty clear about their 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 work within a kind of broadly marxist and left-wing tradition and i think unsurprisingly given the kind of historical moment lots of people who work in the humanities probably want to downplay that (laughs) in their work uh thanks to the kind of red scare um propagandizing of like outfits like turning points with their professor watch list um and the you know the, the constant threat of of, of like you know uh, protests, boycotts, or whatever. So I I would say that it's a kind of Marxist approach to the Gothic is usually complementary. Um, but one of the things that makes Gothic literature and, and actually horror film, if you go more contemporary, so interesting, is that it's really ambivalent. So you can't just go well, really, it's a leftist form, because there's a, there's huge amounts in the Gothic and horror that's like deeply misogynistic usually colonialist, racist, imperialist even, but it is a site in which those anxieties are played out. So I actually think the political implications of these cultural forms have to be contested and they should be contested from the left. Right. So so in your analysis, you're not just looking at, um, well, we won't separate the aesthetic from the ethical, but not just appreciating how well-made a film is, but perhaps insofar as it's an expression of, of political and social realities, um, and then whether the, the filmmakers themselves are kind of aware of or critiquing those realities through the filmmaking, um, there's something very important in, in, in highlighting uh, which are embodying what, what types of politics. And, and so um, th- there's something very interesting going on in, in how, it seems to me, your theolo- theoretical uh, kind of unmasking, mm. if you will, of... Uh, uh, of of these films and and uh, and and these you know contemporary expressions of or critiques of um, you know the cultural the social the political um, can help advance you know a, a better um, cultural understanding and representation of what maybe politics should be 
It's it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, what I really love about horror uh, films is that you can go, well, they're metaphoric, but it also turns out in lots of them that the metaphor is just true. <laughs> so, for, so, for example, in, mm. in, in Rosemary's yeah. Baby, you go, ah, well, this is a metaphor about the kind of anxieties of the middle-class bourgeois living in uh, the suburbs. But also... It's literally about Satanists who want to bring about the birth of the Antichrist. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, you know, so <laughs> which, which is which is great on its own, you know, on its own. So I wrote too. I wrote a paper about um the the kind of resurgence of haunted house films in the wake of the subprime mortgage crisis in America. And it's like yes, you can say, say that it's 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 just a metaphor expressing the anxieties that have emerged around home, home ownership how that intersects with like the ideology of America as a, as a kind of political uh, space. But also it's about people are literally having their homes repossessed. <laughs> that, like it's a metaphor, but it's actually literally yeah. true. Yeah. And, and, and the, there's a resonance yeah, for absolutely. a reason, right? For absolutely. That reason. Yeah. Do you suppose that, that the, the um, creators of that kind of, you know, schlocky, um, you know, jump scare type of, of haunted house film. Do, do you think it's um, completely instinctual, the sort of thing that they're like, like the, the note that they're, they're, they're sounding and the, the anxieties they're playing on? Do you, or do you suppose there's a kind of deliberate um, intentionality there? Well, I mean, it would be very easy to kind of, you know, pull the old intentional fallacy and go, uh, well, we can't can't read intention into it. But actually, a lot of like horror directors have been very explicitly left wing. Um, you know, you've got people mm-hmm. like Brian Usner, who made the amazing 1989 horror film Society, which is which is literally about the rich being blood sucking aliens. Who, <laughs> if you if you've never seen it, uh, it also features perhaps the most wild and just off the chain last 30 minutes uh, that I've ever seen, um, which I will not spoil, but I highly recommend if you have a somewhat strong constitution, uh, watch Society. So I think you can, in some cases, uh, especially like a lot of the kind of Italian gallows and the kind of European horror film of the 70s and 80s that came out of a very political context of filmmaking. Um, But I, I also think that maybe intention is not the most important thing. You know, you can you can um, kind of uh, assimilate and grab onto anything that's produced in a cultural moment and kind of read something more generally rather than, oh, really what, uh, you know, the director of X film meant to say was. Because this is the thing that's, that makes yeah. them so interesting is that you go, well, they're a metaphor, but they're not a direct one-to-one correlation they don't just kind of easily map onto an existing situation in the world there's always a kind of surplus of meaning so even the most kind of reactionary fascistic film garbage you can go well just because they may have intended to make this doesn't mean that we can't subvert what they were doing (laughs) because metaphors are always excessive there's there's always a kind of surplus that can be co-opted What, so I'm going to read a, a passage here from um, a, a post uh, towards the Gothic Marxism uh, on, on monsters. It's just the end here. I, I think it's it's great uh, and worth talking about. Tell us what you mean a little bit by this um, when you write. So we're deep within the monster factory. 
For this, we need a Gothic Marxism, analysis that would expose the occult economies of capitalism that keep hidden the ways in which capitalism operates and normalizes itself, as well as understand this this cultural proliferation of monsters for what they are, not just a warning of what we think may happen, but a record of what is in so many ways already happening. Uh, Yeah, okay. So where, where would you like me to sort of start? So, so perhaps tell us a bit about how uh, Gothic Marxism, like, what well, what are the occult economies of capitalism that that uh, that hide kind of the way capitalism operates? What what could Gothic Marxism kind of unmask? Well, for us this there? is basically a kind of I'm just I'm just ripping off one of the early sections from Capital Volume One, where Marx where Marx talks about <laughs> commodity fetishism, and he says that you know this. It's it's uh, the table turning, this table which is stood up upon its head, and all of these strange and eldritch, uh, immaterial forces attach themselves to something which is a an inherently natural product. Mm. And the whole point of capitalism is that it uh, dissolves the kind of social relations between people, and instead relations are mediated by relations between objects. So these these mm. things which are, you know, impersonal, tactile. Just, just objects that we encounter in the world that suddenly, when they're placed into the network of value and exchange and and the mediation of price, suddenly become these kind of abstract entities. These these uh, nowadays in the kind of globalized network of banking, uh, digital ghosts and and numbers on a screen which have no real connection anymore to that kind of physical commodity that that was going to satisfy a particular uh, need. So. In a right. sense, it's perfectly possible to read capitalism itself as a, as a as a vast occult economy, you know, a confidence game that has become uh, so ingrained that we take it to be natural. This is the great kind of uh, right wing talking point that this is just the way the world is. That, that you know, capitalism is like gravity. Mm. Capitalism is a kind of it's it's physics. Yeah. <laughs> physics. You can't argue with it. It's just the way that the universe is. And the value of Gothic Marxism and and good Marxist historical materialism is to reveal the fact that this is a system which was created and instantiated often with huge amounts of violence uh, defended brutally by the ruling classes uh, and so and has been naturalized over not just decades but gener- but centuries so one of the ways in which we can do this is kind of go well actually let's peel back the veneer of, of respectability and and natural authority that's been given to the kind of political class to the to the uh, to the, the owner class and expose them for what they are. That's fascinating. So so in a way, you might say that there is a uh, supernatural way in which capitalism naturalizes itself, or those that justify um, what capitalism does and how it operates. Um, there, there's something supernatural about the, the the way they make it seem natural, like a mystification process or or something yeah, that holds a, about that. Absolutely, That's really it, it's a it's a complete mystification process. Um, I uh, I just today actually I picked up um, a copy of Yanis Varoufakis's book on uh, talking with his daughter about the economy, and he <laughs> makes the point in the introduction that when economists explain things. Unlike scientists, they don't actually give you more information. They just tell you how much more you do not understand. So there, so there is, I think, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that there is a kind of cult mystification at work. 
I, I had a professor in college who said that uh, if assumptions were horses, economists would ride. <laughs> <laughs> but but, um, but no, that's, also, that's wonderful. One further point I would add is like in that reference to the monster factory is that capitalism produces monsters as well. There are figures and there are organizations mm, and groups mm. who are relentlessly monstered. You are right, right, and and you note that the appearance of monsters is not the same thing as the reality of monsters. Is that right? There's a distinction you're drawing uh, there. Yeah, just because just because something appears to be monstrous, uh, monsters have this in, a, a fascinating like ambiguity. They 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 point towards something. Uh, the the uh, the root of monster is is the Latin to show, uh, the monstrum to demonstrate something. They're a sign. And so it's always interesting and I think kind of vital to kind of look at a political situation and go, who, who here is the monster that we are designed to fear? And who has told me that this is what they are? You know, it's, it's you know, the classic uh, Gothic story is the abandoned castle. And you go into the village and someone will say, don't go near the castle. Or you don't go near the, uh, the, the old meatpacking factory or you don't go near the abandoned fairground because... 35 years ago, this night, this happened. So it's there's there's an important question that, right. uh, that has to be challenged: of who is the monster, and how are they, and how are they placed in that category? And it occurs to me, just with your telling of that, that that those that are deemed monstrous are often done so through a narrative tied to a certain memory of a certain historical, like a certain historical yeah. narrative um, that that's perpetuating. Um, this kind of othering and, and this perhaps um, gap between actually meeting the other and, and, and seeing the human in the other. Um, yeah, that's that. So uh, have you found in your studies um, insights into uh, whether it's the Trump administration or any versions of the kind of proto-fascist uh, neoliberal order, um, ways in which this, this kind of othering or these monsters are produced by capitalism and, and is, uh, any, any particular insights you've seen into um, kind of how that's done, or or what you think is required to combat. Well, that. Uh, the great who the great monster of American politics is the say is actually now now it's all gone very sort of like mid twentieth century because you see the return of the monster for American ideology, which is this, which is specter of communism. You know, we've gone back to the kind of red scare of of Huac and McCarthyism because there are open democratic socialists uh, in in the Democrat Party now, and so. Not so scary. Apparently, not so scary. Yeah, it for turns a lot of out. People. It turns out that actually, when you meet these people and you hear what they have to say, huge, embarrassingly large percentages of the population go, "You know what? This sounds like a pretty good idea." So, <laughs> so if you look at the way that a lot of this is responded to on the right, it is precisely about tying it back to a particular historical moment, which is. Uh, the, the two names that come up over and over again, Venezuela and Stalin, that's what you do. You tie it back to a particular historical moment. You strip it of its historical uh, situatedness because they're not historical materialists. They have no idea how to read historical events other than through this moralizing uh, victim uh, spite that, that they, they operate on. And so and so, what, you, what you'll see is you'll see that again and again, this determined effort by any kind of uh, even like nascent socialist politics in the states will will be tied to like oh the great monster of Stalinism. Did you not know that communism killed a hundred million 
uh, as these kind of moral bludgeons to kind of beat down this with. Because that was always the way that socialism has been handled in, in the United States, like labor movements where, you know, there were Pinkertons and cops who would turn up with guns and bombs. So, like, it's not a surprise, but, but you know, to me, it, it just kind of connects and drives home the importance of a kind of Marxist uh, politics, which is attuned to the Gothic. Because once again, you, you, can, you can never fully exercise and get rid of the spectre of communism. It was, it was haunting Europe when Marx wrote the manifesto. It's haunting American politics at the moment. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's great. I, that's no. I always, I always beat Ryan to the punch because I talk too fast, and so I wanted to give Ryan a, a you know, a chance to to get a word in. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to follow up too. I don't have much to add to that. I think that you know that this is all very uh, illuminating. Um, I did want to to mention, you know, may, maybe um, as a as a sort of media uh varieties of media angle um a video game telling on myself again um but it's a it's it's called uh amnesia a machine for pigs so this is a this is a horror game and uh it's a great title by the way great title yeah i played a little bit of it but i was too chicken shit to finish the whole thing (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> the uh the premise of it is you know you're a guy with amnesia and like a mysterious figure is telling you to fix this machine which is uh you know crawling with these terrifying pig monsters and mm-hmm. um through the game you you slowly fix it and then once you do and it's it's set in like like late uh 19th century london so there's like belching smokestacks and like big gears and just like this sort of you know this this giant machine is that you actually have to get into you know you walk into this um um sort of labyrinth to mm-hmm. to like put it back together and then of course when you finally put it back together it turns out like it's just this you know the point of the machine is to just consume the entire human race and like just destroy like like all life on earth more or less and you know like like the metaphor as you were saying before is is uh is very like you know kind of beating you over the head a little bit but like <laughs> the 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 um implications you know we were talking about intentionality before and whether it matters or not but it seems pretty obvious like what they're what what they were trying to say here and mm. um you know, for listeners, it's supposed to be a great game. I, uh, I guess I couldn't really comment on that exactly, but um, I wonder, you know, if if that, uh, you know, interactive media, do you think that has any sort of um, um, different sort of things to say about this, this sort of... Uh, uh, school of thought that you're talking about here i mean i think i think something like uh, a machine for pigs is a great example and i i one of the kind of really interesting areas um of of this kind of analysis is in game studies and this is what uh my co-host over on horror vanguard is really passionate about is looking at the gothic in gaming um and i think it's so important there because gaming culture has become I think it's pretty safe to say a fairly uh, reactionary and capitalistic uh, 
media economy, right? You've seen huge amounts of layoffs. Uh, You've seen huge amounts of uh, layoffs of of developers and designers over the past uh, few months. Um, And and this is that is the game industry functioning entirely as it's supposed to, right? That is not that's a not an, an anomaly. Uh, and the reason it was done is because the colossal, genuinely mind-boggling amounts of money that these studios have made was not and will never be enough. And so uh, you can read it just as a direct metaphor for capitalism, for example. But that's a great metaphor for the games industry. You you just you yeah. just feed in these these the talented artists, designers, narrative designers, coders, and uh, they are just ch- churned up by this machine that wish, wishes to do nothing but expand infinitely. Yeah, yeah, a bit of uh, the recently just a little news background here: Activision Blizzard, which I think is one of like maybe the second biggest games game publisher. Um, they they uh the ceo bobby kotick who makes like 25 million dollars recently um announced record revenues for the company mm-hmm. and then like a week later that they were laying off 8% of their workforce yeah um, of course du- that and that is directly connected to one another that is that is exactly how yep. the machine works <laughs> So I yeah I mean you know I'm always a little bit over my head here when we're talking uh, we're talking about um, like sophisticated literature analysis and shit but you know I I think it's um, for 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 the STEM graduates out there like myself you know it's like the, this this has this has direct relevance even for you know video games and um, you know whatever sort of artistic media you happen to enjoy. Yeah. Well, and, and I, yeah, there, there's, there's so much, I think, uh, and, and I, I'm so excited because uh, we, we have to have you back on. There's just too much <laughs> to talk about. But um, if we could shift to the left in terms of theoretical ways that the left can think about evil, and, and, right? And especially given that kind of not just Marxist, but postmodern influences uh, theoretically, there is both um, a seeming need to confront real evil, but also a hesitancy for various reasons to, to call things evil because of the ways that right reactionaries and conservatives have appropriated those terms uh, to do violence to a huge swaths of, of, of mm-hmm. people uh, historically. So, so how, how, how can the left theoretically and, and bring in Gothic Marxism as, as you wish or, or not. Um, but, but just how can we think through um, being good leftists and, and, and good theorists uh, to, to undergird our praxis with an understanding of, of how to think about um, the concept of evil or, or, or politically what evil so really there are means. Two, there, like, Let's to step back for a second. There are two broad responses which come up. There is the kind of moralistic dismissal. Um, Terry Eagleton has a great little book on evil, where he talks about the he reports on the police officer who arrested the two boys who um, killed a child in in the UK, and the police officer said, "As soon as I saw them, I knew they were evil," which is which is this kind of it's a kind of post hoc justification for their treatment, right? right. And the alter- and the alternative is right. what Eagleton calls the kind of 
I think rather dismissively, the kind of community care theory of morality where you go, this person isn't bad because of all of these factors in their background. Uh, yeah. Uh, although, although I would say that when, when George W. Bush uh, could see into Putin's soul and saw that he was good is simply a different version of yeah, the yeah, cop who said yeah, those exactly the same thing, just from the opposite direction. And neither of those are particularly satisfying, right? They don't, they don't kind of seem to have much explanatory potential. Um, and I, I wrote, I wrote a, a piece for the Oxford Left Review years ago now about precisely this. And one of the values of the monster is as this kind of interstitial liminal uh, category where we're told that they're evil, but we're also kind of irresistibly drawn towards monsters. Monsters are attractive. Um, and one of the things that uh, the kind of postmodern, post-Marxist responses, the kind of theories of hospitality, um, people like Emmanuel Levinas, Derrida up to a point wrote about this. But Simon Critchley makes the good point that this kind of utter openness to the other is actually a philosophy of horror because there's no way of knowing that the other is 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 good and safe. Because so you kind of go, well, all we can do is kind of be radically open but also uh, we don't know who it is that we're, we're going to encounter when you reach out to the other. So one of the ways that I've been thinking about this today, just because I knew this was going to come up, is the concept of like class struggle is not just a political category, but a moral category as well, right? So how do we kind of work through this uh, kind of the, the ethical demand of hospitality towards the other, whilst at the same time, not kind of just being left in this sort of ethical abyss. And the way that you get around it is you connect collective class struggle and the kind of material conditions of survival with that ethical demand. I also think we should probably bear in mind that we're maybe slightly too quick to say that certain things are evil. Uh, the, the English philosopher Mary Midgley had this great quote where she said that we must not confuse wickedness with evil. Like wickedness, doing doing things which are bad is is extremely common, but so often we use sure. this category of the monster of evil as a way of separating out our own implication within the violence within the horror that's been produced. You know, you go well. That's not mm. us. we would never do that. But you know, uh, to, to contextualize it in American politics, if you look at um at the kind of great event of nine eleven. You know, we've got, well, that, that's monstrous. That's evil. That's horrific. We would never do that. Mm, mm. But then you look at the kind of material realities of American foreign policy for, I don't know, however many decades. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. So is there a link between what we think of as evil and our ability to explain it? Like, so, so in, in, a, in a way, if we have proper context, then we no longer think something evil because we understand what caused it in a way, or, or we, it's something just wicked or fallen because we see the imperfection and we see the lack of, of knowledge, you know, that the Socratic idea that, that she who knows what is right will do what is right. And, and so therefore like all um, evil in a way is a simple uh, lack of, 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 of knowing how and knowing what the good is. Or, or, or so, so is, is there something about what we call evil as a way to end the inquiry because we can't fathom what could cause I mean, I think like that's that? often part of it, right? We go, well, you can't, you can't try and understand something because that comes too close to condoning it. You, you, you right. have to go, well, that's, well, you yeah. can't, 
it's a big thing on the left, isn't it? That's a big problem on the left. And I, I mean, that's so important that we don't conflate those things, right? Like so important to seek to understand as much as possible without thinking that necessarily implies yeah, absolutely. it, right? This, this, uh, this was also um, recent speech came out from Joe Biden uh, in like 1992, I think, where he's talking about the crime bill and responding to criticisms that like, you know, you're not you're not addressing the causes of crime. You're you're just throwing people in jail. And he's like, I don't care what the causes of crime are. You know, we just need to take these people and need to separate them from society. And yeah, I, th- I think it's a pretty common, you know, yeah. it's like you see see a terrible thing happen. And, you know, it's just you want to be like, that's that's it. That's we don't need to f- think about anything aside from that, that they're bad. End of discussion. <laughs> yeah, it's a way of drawing that category of, of monstrous, that category of evil. Is It does two things. It ends the discussion, because you can't talk about this anymore, uh, given given the, the, that you've gone, well, this is evil, so that's it. Case closed. Throw away the key. And also, <laughs> it, conveniently, it conveniently places us outside of any connection or any, any hint of moral blame. It's because if we were honest right. about the kind of material conditions, uh, you go, well, maybe maybe Western imperialism and violence has had not the sole determining cause, but maybe maybe in some way that we are we are implicated. We're kind of bound up within within a complex network of of connections and causes that we don't fully understand, and that can uh, produce heinous violence. Um, you know, to kind of go back in Simon Critchley, he says that our kind of basic ontological condition is being in debt you know we're in debt to one another and it's when we kind of forsake that and kind of try and cut cut the connections by going well i don't need to understand i don't need to understand the cause i can just go well well these people are evil and we can get rid of them these people are monsters we can we can excommunicate them it's never that simple yeah right and that's is that from uh infinitely demanding Yeah, yeah. Also, I recommend Faith of the Faithless is very good too. Um, but st- so, so you know, it makes me in terms of agency and responsibility. I, I find this with my students; it's kind of funny actually. Uh, sometimes they'll laugh at me. They'll be like, "So, so what you're saying is we're not really ever responsible for anything?" Because I, I always give them the kind of underlying systemic structural causation uh, that explains so many of these things that people tend to reduce to just an individual person mm-hmm. being evil or whatnot. And they just kind of laugh at me because they feel like, "Ah, we're free. We didn't. We never. We never uh, did anything ourselves." So, so what is the role of agency on on, on the left? And, and understanding um, kind of, you know, collectively we're responsible, but it seems kind of the countervailing response to this atomistic, individualistic moralism uh, tends to sometimes elide the role that we each play. Yeah, right? I mean, the, the great example of this is the kind of axiom that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. You know, we go, oh, well, there's no ethical right. consumption under capitalism. But, but yeah, I do yeah whatever but I want. here's the thing. <laughs> the attempt to act ethically, even on an individual basis, is not meaningless, right? You know, it's, in fact, That's like right. any kind of ethical stand, as long as it's uh, committed, is actually deeply meaningful. Even if it fails, you know, even if you go, well, I'm going to be an ethical consumer as much as one can be, and you go, well, I didn't keep up with that. That is not a kind of meaningless decision that one's made, you know? And I think it's, I think I'll be honest i think this idea of like there's no there's no ethical consumption under capitalism therefore i'll do whatever i want 
is is a is a is a cop out. <laughs> it's 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 no it's enormously sure. lazy egoism uh, rather than actual yeah. thinking through material conditions. Yeah, I think the the proper the the, the, the proper implication there is like there there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. These problems need to be addressed collectively. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing wrong with trying to you know cut down things, you know, eat less meat or um, you know just reduce your carbon footprint and so on, um, because it's you know. It, at least it won't hurt. I mean, it'll help a tiny bit. And insofar as yeah. like that example helps convince other people, it could help like a little bit more, you know, and, and, you know, just sort of increase the overall efficiency of society. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's not, it's not like that individual actions are worthless. It's just, you have to, you have to connect means and ends. Yeah. hundred you know, you, you have to realize 100%. if it's a big problem, you got to, you you got you have to have a collective solution that is you know sort of coercively uh, implemented, and and there's something very atomistic about that response, which which like just just reaffirms that bullshit you know ontology or metaphysics that well what I do or don't do doesn't matter right well you're 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 still thinking of yourself as individuated and and not related to other people and and as we know from affect theory and from all kinds of social science studies. Um, you know, whether it be uh, apparently, right. It was Nicholas Christakis, I, I suppose, um, it, one person voting, um, indirectly influences a hundred mm. other people to vote uh, through no actual direct, uh, influence at all. Just like somehow we don't understand exactly how that, that causation works, but, but we're, we're bound up with each other. And so like if one's own subject formation is this kind of selfish disregard because of, uh, this despair of, well, I can't really change anything. It's all collective that, that kind of removes the, the connection, the intersubjectivity of the subject and others, right? And we're all connected to each other. And so we have to both not think it's sufficient to do things individually, but not neglect that individual yeah, role. Yeah, totally. Right? And to kind of return this yeah. to a kind of spooky uh, Marxism, there's, a, there's this brilliant <laughs> yeah. quote by um, the late, great Mark Fisher, where he talks about that we, we've yet to reckon with our insertion into capitalism on the level of desire. You know, capitalism is dead labor, but the thing that we haven't yet kind of uh, fully realized is that the zombies that it creates is us. Um, And so I'm working on this, Mm. I'm working on a new essay, which is essentially a a short piece of zombie fiction where we, I'm trying to kind of unpick this, this fact that where we go, well, none of my individual choices matter. That's what lots of people think. There is a kind of, (laughs) <laughs> that that is exactly the point right that we 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 become an, in another way we become a kind of atomized desubjectivized monad drifting through this going well it doesn't matter you know nothing that i do matters but we have but and we, <laughs> but the reason that we do that is because it appeals to us at the level of desire to be inserted within the capitalist system of consumption precisely because we have not yet got anything that uh, on offer which is better you know, instead of going, right. not, there is no ethical con- consumption under capitalism. We, we need to be talking far more about the kind of interconnectedness of, 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 of groups. We need to be building class consciousness. We need to be offering people a kind of a vision of a, of a, of a non-capitalist culture, uh, which is why I was drawn to the, the horror film in the first place. 
That's interesting. And, and John, what in the horror genre, whether it's literature or film, do you think models that kind of solidarity or that, you know, the collective class consciousness, you know, in terms of our, because I think it's so important that the political imagination um, that shapes subject formation to actually have the the will to pursue things not previously thought possible. It's so important for, mm. for change. Uh, what what in, in kind of uh, the gothic genre do you think doesn't just show us the critique of what is, but perhaps some hope and some imagination for uh, a more collective way to, to change? And to well, uh, this is... This is something that I, I kind of call the, the the sort of redemptive possibility, right? That we we go into you go into the the vampire's castle, and you do so together because you know that the threat that you face uh, collectively is far greater than the danger that you all pose to each other individually. Um, and not all of you will not not all of us will make it out. Not all of us will will survive. Um, but um, China Mievel has this this great line where he talks about the necessity of salvage, right? You know, we're, we're up to our knees in flood water and fire, but we're not going to build anything pure and, and, and safe and separate, but we might salvage something. We might jerry rig something together that will, that will, will get, us, get us out of this sort of uh, danger of drowning. Um, so I, I think it's this, it's in the confrontation. It's in, it's in, what 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 horror models is the potential for for, for class struggle uh, on a, on a very basic level? Even if it's a level most people don't kind of recognise as such, you know, collective action in the pursuit of one's not acting just for oneself, but for, yeah, a class in itself um, is is something that I think is quite actually common in the horror film. Mm. Sure. Sure. I, I, even just like whether it's The Walking Dead or what have you, uh, it also replicates kind of that that original almost shifting from the state of nature to the social contract and, and then the need to figure out how to navigate from the, the kind of survival and the existential threat posed by um, whatever monsters are out there to forming some way to understand each other yeah. in the common good um, amidst all of that, right? I it's mean, really, if, you, if, you take, if you take uh, the onrushing financial crisis the oncoming ecological crisis as truly existential threats which they are you know there is no there is no way out of this except together um through through systemic action and therefore kind of uh abnegating the individual responsibility to forge those connections and go well nothing i do matters is is you know not okay <laughs> that's right amen brother <laughs> I will get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> well preached, sir. Well preached. Um, I've got a question about um, maybe we could change gears slightly to just sort of theory in general. Um, you, you've you've written a lot about uh, you know all these various theorists. Um, you know, Adorno, Horkheimer, uh, Althusser, and so forth. Um, I've been reading a bit about the uh, the Russian Revolution, and um, one thing that 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 jumped out at me uh, was the extent to which the sort of democratic socialist elements, you know, the Mensheviks, 
and the uh, the social revolutionaries were kind of paralyzed by their theoretical uh, uh, understandings of how you know the 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 progression of capitalism was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, just re- repeatedly refused to sort of just take power to create a sort of Soviet democracy. Mm. And, um, w- you know, it ended up sort of ceding the field to the Bolsheviks, who really didn't give a shit about theory. And they just wanted to, you know, uh, create a one-party dictatorship. Um what do you suppose, in, in your view, what, what do you think is the uses and, and perhaps the potential downsides of theory when it comes to, you know, collective mobilization? So there's a, there's a, that's a really good question. And the kind of way that I would answer it is that, um, to, is to turn back to someone like Lukash. Lukash wrote this essay back in the early 1900s where he said that what would happen one day if somebody proved that Marx was wrong about everything that that it was that it was all that he was completely incorrect and he says that anyone who called themselves a marxist would not have to forswear anything that they've said previously for the very simple reason that kind of marxism is not dogma you know it isn't this is this is the problem of that kind of period of marxist history where it the progression of capitalism into communism was taken as kind of like holy scripture that had been handed down because Lukash said, and this is something that I think is very true, is that Marxism is a method. That's that's its use. It is it's a method. And the method is historical materialism. Uh, so it it doesn't matter if 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 historical conditions don't line up with what we have predicted. Actually, historical conditions are enti- are, are in many ways so contingent and it are so prone to instability and to change. You know, dialectical materialism tells us that everything is on the brink of turning into its opposite at all times and that there is this incredible contingency and fragility to the conditions that we live within. So what we need is we need a method of organization. And one of the reasons I kind of commit myself to working in a broadly Marxist vein of thought is that historical materialism is something that can explain things. You know, if you look at the you look at the other options, you've got like warmed over end of history francis fukuyama 2.0 which doesn't really explain very much <laughs> on the right you've got proto-fascism which can maybe sort of articulate some of the problem but its solutions are, are horrific and monstrous and should absolutely be crushed or you've got this kind of bland wonkery which is entirely <laughs> ent- entirely disconnected from how actual people actually exist in the world so my, my the point is i think theory is not dogma right it isn't something that is infallible or kind of the final word on anything what it is is a method and so there's a kind of responsibility on on any kind of person interested in intellectual work to keep what is good from people who have written before us and but to constantly interrogate it to question it and when it does not work to discard it to say that this is a situation in which it doesn't apply Right. And, and I assume you think it's also useful insofar as, right, like, as, as, as Marx wrote, uh, you know, material force, uh, I'm sorry, theory can become a material force when it seizes yeah. the masses. So, so theory itself, right, can actuate change. So there's this, this kind of relationship between, right, whether based on the superstructure or what have you. Um, and, and so what, what, um, what, what do you see? What do you think? I mean, you've talked about Gramsci before. What do you think in terms of how theory and praxis relate and how we can use 
uh, I mean, of course, it's fun as well to just enjoy and appreciate um, the horror genre and, and so forth. But w- politically, what can we use theory for? How, how do you think of it that well, way? There's um, David Harvey tells the story of, of teaching uh, his introduction to Marx's Capital uh, at like one of the most prestigious universities in the States. And also, I think he did a, a course of teaching it in a prison. And so anyone who was in prison, anyone who'd come from a working class background went, yep, yep, yeah, this all makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> Why? It, it, yeah, obviously, this is all just kind of obviously true, whereas all of the people who came from very kind of really struggle to engage with it. And so I think if you ask, if you kind of take seriously the metaphoric implications of the horror film, like horror fans are among some of the most politically engaged people in 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 wider culture who maybe don't even know it yet who maybe don't even realize that what they're doing is actually like political work um so i i think that's the use of it because it isn't about kind of taking away the fun of of like just enjoying a scary movie it's about illuminating the ways in which their understanding of why this is scary connects to what happens to them when they leave the movie theater at midnight and go back to work 9 a.m tomorrow morning those things are, are not distinct and, and separate uh, moments, but part of a kind of continuum. And if you can feed one into the other, I think it can be enormously useful for people's political education. Awesome. <laughs> this has been fun. Uh, this, this has been great. Uh, anything you'd like to, to add or, or that you uh, that you wanted to get to that we didn't arrive at? Uh, no, no. That's, I just I just feel like I've maybe talked like, a lot. <laughs> no, it's been, I mean, besides your plummy voice, you're brilliant. So it's just a beautiful combo. Uh, Us Americans have a weakness for British accents. That's it's sad but true. A, hold, a holdover from the colonial legacy <laughs> no and, and we should have talked about seduction and horror because this relates to vampires and other things um but no it's very seductive and, and that's and that's part of the affect formation that we need politically to shift people and make them commies so it's great yeah i mean if i ever struggle in my career i'm just going to do a heel turn and uh do, do like speaking tours of u.s college campuses denouncing cultural marxism Uh, i gotta get them jordan b peterson patreon dollars (laughs) oh my god i mean the academic career isn't going great at the moment so maybe it's time to just pull the heel turn and and you know get like a ben shapiro style youtube channel oh god capitalism rewards all the wrong people doesn't it there's there's no ethical speaking fees under (laughs) capitalism as we know uh it's just basic economics that's all i would need (laughs) (laughs) i've got one one uh one final question who who's your sort of favorite theorist or do you think most relevant for 2019 and and oh man that is that is really really tough can you give them a top three? How about that? Give them an unordered top three. Uh, yeah, okay. In no particular order. And these will just be theorists, which I think are particularly uh, kind of important to me personally. I think someone like Mark Fisher for kind of reigniting a political cultural criticism. Someone like uh, Gramsci for the necessity of a kind of socialist hegemony and a socialist imagination. And I think... Uh, I, got to be my boy Carl you know there's nothing like 
let's. I want the DSA to be endorsing the Communist Manifesto. Like, <laughs> um, but but I think you know, you know. I think if we want to understand the fact that the way in which capital is still structured upon the same lines which produced the the, the last great economic crash, you know, there is the the Marxist tradition of economic critique, the Italian Marxist. Uh, tradition of kind of ideological and hegemonic thoughts and I think kind of Fisher's internet cultural criticism have got huge explanatory power for 2019 wonderful appreciate that that's great great uh, well, thank you so much again for having me on and allowing me to talk about the the spooky left and to, to plug horror vanguard absolutely yeah plug away and, and who, who is your your, your co- uh, your partner in crime, as it were, your partner in horror with uh, Horror Vanguard. What do you want to give the, the Twitter handle for your partner as well? Uh, that is Ash. You will find him on the Horror Vanguard uh, Twitter page. But please do follow Ash. He is uh, uh, he's the gamer out of the two of us. He's constantly trying to radicalize me into gaming. <laughs> that's like Ryan. Right? That's that's the Ryan to to me. So that's that's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> you would get on. Wonderful. Um, well, maybe maybe bring uh, Ash on next time. You, you have to come back. Well, this was too much fun. I, I don't know if I, I'm sorry if you had to suffer through through uh, our, our questions, but uh, we enjoyed having you for sure. I can speak for Ryan. I know him well enough. <laughs> no, thank you. Well, maybe. Yeah, go on. We could go on to the the uh, horror. Yeah, that'd yard. be fun. That would be extremely exciting to get one or both of you onto Horror Vanguard. If you, for, if you allow me to force Ryan to suffer through the scariest film, you'll make him watch. And then we can talk about it. That'd be great. Yeah, definitely. I would, I would be very interested in doing something uh, possibly on The Purge. Oh, yes. Excellent. That, that's uh, highly politically uh, relevant. Yeah. Uh, I was, I'm, I'm sort of writing an essay about Jason Blum. And I was reading over my notes one week and all I'd written in my notes was Jason Blum needs to read Lenin. And I was like, <laughs> I, d- I don't know. I don't know what I meant by that, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's true. Let's tease that out. I like that a lot. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, we've got a few guests already lined up, which is really exciting. But it would be it would be amazing if we could either do this again or get you get you both over. To, why not both? To, yeah, why not both? Um, that'd be wonderful. Excellent, my friend. Well, pleasure. Really great to meet you. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening. It was, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for both of you for just responding to me online going, yeah, these seem like they'd be fun. I want to do some more of them. Absolutely. It paid um, off. Uh, and, and we look forward to, to seeing you again and talk to you soon, my friend. All right. All the best. See you. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.